Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Harlan Ullman. Published a book, December 2021, title of the book. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the cover. Is The Fifth Horseman and the New MAD of the New MAD. How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. Uh, this is not his first book. He's written 12 books in total. This book, particular book, The Fifth Horseman and the New MAD, is up for the best national security book of 2021. Uh, Dr. Ullman is a senior advisor at the Atlantic Council, and uh, he can talk more about his biography. I'd just like a list, a list, to list a few of his books that are on Amazon. One back in 2005 is Owls and Eagles, Ending the Foreign Policy Flights of Fancy of Hawks, Doves, and Neocons. 2009 is America's Promise Restored, Preventing Culture, Crusade, and Partisanship from Wrecking Our Nation, 2004. Very timely book. Shock and Awe, Achieving Rapid Dominance, 2012, and also A Handful of Bullets, How the Murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand Still Menaces the Peace in 2014. But again, we're going to talk about this book you just recently published. Title again is The Fifth Horseman and the New MAD, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a divided nation and the world at large, and it's Dr. Harlan Ullman. So, Dr. Ullman, welcome to the show. William, I appreciate being on your show. It's an Excellent. So, for time, people, it's an important time to discuss really critical issues that I think are being not discussed enough and not well enough understood. Excellent. So, I'm really glad you take the time out of your day to talk about this book in in, in the context of current events. But for, for people who may not have heard your background, can you kind of go into detail about your uh, CV, sure. and you've written uh, 12 books, and what led up to writing this one, The Fifth Horseman? Sure. Uh, I'm a former naval person. I spent uh, 20 years in the Navy. I spent a time in Vietnam in over 150 missions in swift boats and operations and uh, combat. I commanded a destroyer in the Persian Gulf. Uh, I had the good fortune as a very young officer to be on the faculty of the National War College, where one of my prime students was then Lieutenant Colonel Colin Powell who was a fast friend until his death tragically last year. And after I left the Navy, I went into business. I've been chairman of a couple of companies. I advise heads of states, uh, heads of government, uh, and heads of major corporations. And what led me to write these number of books is my dissatisfaction in the way American policy is being administered. This really goes back to 2001, the attack uh, on America that brought down the Twin Towers. And since that time, whole universe has changed so dramatically that we don't understand the changes and we're not dealing with it. During the Cold War, we had something called the old man, massive attacks, I should say mutual assured destruction. What that meant was that the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain and France and others had so much not only nuclear firepower, but thermonuclear firepower. And a thermonuclear weapon is a thousand times more destructive than a nuclear weapon. We could destroy society. And that threat kept the peace in large measure. But after September 11th, something strange happened. <clears throat> the world used to be dominated by states, by countries that controlled things. But with non-state actors, not only like Al-Qaeda, but many others, some kid with a computer, they had the ability to intervene and do hugely disruptive things. And that led me, sort of the early 2000s, come up with this idea that the old mad is being placed with the new mad called massive attacks of disruption. But these were one-off situations, cyber attacks, things like that. It really took COVID 
two and a half years ago to bring this together. COVID was a huge attack of massive disruption. More Americans died in COVID so far than were killed in every battle America has fought since 1775. Huge disruption. And not only was it disruption on people's lives, but disruption in our political discourse. People could not agree on masks, on whether to close things down on vaccines. And unlike Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, that rallied a, a nation that was divided, COVID managed to divide us further. When I look out, I see seven major massive attacks of disruption. The most dangerous is failed and failing government. And if anybody thinks the U.S. government is working, irrespective of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge, they better take another look. Over three quarters of Americans think the country is in the wrong direction. This country is in dire straits because of these massive attacks of disruption. Climate change, whether you believe that or not, take Yosemite. Three weeks ago, you couldn't get into Yosemite because it was flooded. Now these giant sequoias are at risk of forest fires. Take cyber. Supposing you, for example, William, had subject to a cyber attack that took away your ID, that took away your bank account, that took away your cell phone, that took away everything that you thought was of value. That's happening. And we do not understand that if these massive attacks of disruption are destroying uh, our society or certainly doing great damage. And right now, inflation and gasoline prices are two obvious examples of what's happening to society. Think about how they're disrupting the life of Americans. New York Times published the other day a remarkable piece in which it said 1% of the country has more value in terms of wealth than 90% of the country. It said, and I can't quote these figures, but even if you divide them in half, two-thirds of Americans live at or below the poverty level in terms of low income. Stunning. Stunning. That Absolutely. 130,000 Americans can't live from, live from paycheck to paycheck. Even if you divide that in half, it describes a huge inequality in economic terms. This is a massive attack of disruption, and government is not dealing with it. So this book lays out the problems, and the last three of the 10 chapters goes into solutions about how we fix this. It's not going to happen overnight, but the American public has to realize our republic is being threatened. The Constitution is not working. And unless we pay attention and demand of our leaders that they have to show leadership and more competence, this country is going in the wrong direction. And I fear, at the very best, standards of living will decline and the American dream will be particularly elusive. And that's the best outcome right now. We have to change that. This is the reason for the book and why the book is in place at the current times. And you kind of use the approach of a hypothetical, right? You use this woman in the next Present. 20 years. Yeah. Can you yeah. can you talk about that and how? Yeah. How, what? Of course. Uh, if you go to the preface, <clears throat> and by the way, I before the preface, I talk about my lack of success. I was a very young officer in 1967 in the summer, brought back to see President Johnson to talk about the war. And I told President Johnson in the White House, in the, in the living quarters, we were getting killed. I got a pep rally. I argued against um, Bill Clinton expanding NATO. I argued against the George W. Bush administration going into Iraq because I have pretty conclusive proof that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. And in Afghanistan in 2006, along with General Jim Jones, who had been the NATO commander, we argued why NATO was losing in Afghanistan. So my track record 
while it's been accurate in terms of predicting, it's had no effect on changing our policy. And so today, what I want to do is to make sure we understand that we're on the wrong track. And so the way I start this as the author of Shock and Awe, and the idea of Shock and Awe was to be able to win wars without fighting. It was to impose such shock and awe on an enemy that they would be impotent. They would be incapable of responding. You didn't have to use military force to do it, other thing. And so this starts in January 20th, 2029, when a woman has just been elected president, 48th president, meaning that Joe Biden does not get elected and his successor does not get reelected, uh, who is not taking the oath of office from the Congress, which has been destroyed by a drone attack, or from the White House, which has also been destroyed, but from an undisclosed location, which is the new White House, which is a concrete iceberg located underground because America has become uncontrollable. And all the worst things that could happen with China now seizing Taiwan, Vladimir Putin celebrating his 77th birthday in Kiev, all these things that could evolve against this country. And I conclude by saying, at this time in 2020, when the book was finally written, did anybody think that the murder of a black man in Minneapolis was going to cause riots, not only throughout the United States, but around the world, or that a new pandemic would kill millions? It could happen here. This is a warning. I'm not suggesting this could happen, but we are on the wrong path. And I think 75 or 80 percent of Americans agree with me. We can fix it. The book is optimistic as long as you appreciate there are ways to do it if we understand the dangers. And they're less from China and Russia. I think we've exaggerated both threats, regardless of what Putin is doing in Ukraine, which is obscene. We can deal with that if we're smart. We haven't been smart, but we have to be smart and we have to show leadership and confidence. And this is a book that pleads for Americans to take, take pay attention and understand we can change the direction where we're headed. Right. And even just this year, there's just been massive uh, restructuring of the global order. And you used this term Westphalian, that we're moving from this kind of old Westphalian state into something yeah. else. Can you define that term? Sure. And in, in 1648, the Westphalian system was put in place after the so-called 30-year war in Europe. And what that meant was that states, countries, nations were in charge of international politics. They were the only ones who were the ultimate users and arbiters of force. And so that system persisted for 350 years. On September 11, 2001, the attacks on New York City and Washington proved that non-state actors had the ability to disrupt and change the international system. So it was no longer states that are in control. And now you have not only non-government organizations that have huge power, but individuals. Think about the nominal 15-year-old kid with a computer someplace around the world who decides that he wants to shut down crypto or the banking system or the internet. People have the capacity to do that. In other words, people have the ability to disrupt today that never existed 10, 20, or 30 years ago. This is what I mean as what changed and why the Westphalian system in which there were a few major actors, and they often got things wrong, World War I or World War II, in charge. Now, virtually anybody can have a huge impact on the way that uh, politics are conducted through social media and the internet. This has revolutionized the conduct of social behavior, and we have not yet adjusted to it, and this book proposes ways that we do so. 
And you can see that. I mean, you had Mark Zuckerberg add tons of money into this sure. last election. Soros is influencing the elections of uh, attorney uh, local district attorneys or things like that. These are things that didn't happen that much in the past, or you didn't hear of that. So this well, disrupt- no, the point is there was always been this degree of influence, but now it's it's changed. For example, Elon Musk probably has more satellites that he owns in space than many countries. He's got two two thousand satellites. Now you can go back to the Robert Barons, you can go back to the Rockefellers and the Fords who had huge control, and they did in terms of industrial issues. But now in the information age, people have the ability to control information, and this is an information-dominant system. So in an in a interesting way, the new Robert Barons have been recreated, but even with more influence. And the amount of money that somebody like an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos has can be put, you know, to, to, to huge influence, whether for good or for ill. That's always been the case. But right now, the ability to reach out, there are going to be 8 billion people on the planet. The ability to reach a billion, 2 billion people, 25% of the world population now exists because of the internet, social media. That never happened before. That's the big difference since the invention of the printing press, you know, 600 years ago. Right. And it's just if you're in this, it's hurtling forward too. like there's an exponential. Can you talk about how that is another uh, massive kind of attack, a a massive disruption? Well, let me let me put it this way, William. For people who want a visual image, consider the U.S. ship of state. It's massive vehicle vessel bigger than the Titanic hurtling along with its rudders jammed, its engines going full ahead that nobody can stop or reverse, and the captain on the bridge screaming orders that go unheard and unheeded. The rudders are locked, which is the metaphor for Congress, which can't do anything. Congress passes a bill on gun violence, which is going to have marginal effect. It may help help mental illness, but it's going to be marginal. We have a huge gun violence problem we cannot deal with. And so the ship is not only headed for uncharted waters in which there are icebergs and rocks and shoals, which are massive attacks of disruption, large or small, we don't have a compass and a chart to help us. That's the visual image I hope people have. And we've got to change that. And it's not that difficult intellectually. Look, we understand that we've got all these massive attacks of disruption. Society is not prepared to do that. Our society is still large based on the 20th century industrial age. It's got to move to the information age of the 21st century. That requires, in my mind, several things a massive infrastructure overhaul, which I argue for in my book. And the $1.2 trillion that Congress has appropriated and the president has signed is not not only enough, there's not enough oversight for it. What we do is we did in World War II with war bonds. What we do in this particular case is we offer to Americans, as the Treasury does with so-called inflation bonds, raise 3 or $4 trillion. We pay 2 or 3 or 4% over prime guaranteed by the U.S. government, and we invent massively in the infrastructure, and not just roads or bridges or airports or traditional infrastructure. What about education? What about the internet? What about reverse research and development? What about supply chain? What about healthcare? What about all these other issues that are not considered to be part of infrastructure because that was a 20th century, but the 21st century? And how do we pay this off? During the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. government appropriated $800 billion to give to the major banks to move them from private to public companies so they could deal 
with this huge crisis. But the government was really smart under George W. Bush. They took a pound of flesh. They took shares and warrants in each of these major banks. The loans were repaid very, very quickly because the banks were quite solvent. But the government made a lot of money in terms of interest. So when we invest in infrastructure, whether it's solar, whether it's nuclear, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence, and we're investing in particular companies, the government could shake a, a form of equity or warrants. So when those companies do well, the government does. We're an entrepreneurial society. We should do that. And we can repay the debt over doing this. And yet this is common sense. But unfortunately, because Republicans and Democrats are deadlocked in a failed and failing government, we cannot approach these things in common in commonsensical terms. And we have to do this. And the book goes into large numbers of areas. Let me give you an example, two examples that your viewers and listeners will find amusing. In 1962, 60 years ago, we had three and a half million people on active duty. The government in 1922 and 2022 dollars spent roughly $550 billion on defense. Today, we have 1.3 million or just slightly less people on active duty and a defense budget that's going to approach $850 billion. The more we spend, the more we shrink our force. Why is that? That's not commonsensical. And by the way, I argue that I can fix Congress overnight by one simple step. And people will be amused when they listen to this, but it really makes sense. Every member of Congress before they vote on a bill has to swear or affirm they have read that bill and understand it. Now, members of Congress say, that's impossible. I get a bill at 10 o'clock at night. It's 4,000 pages in length. How can I possibly read it and vote on and I have to vote on it the next day. Sorry, if you work in a public company, there's a law called Sarbanes-Oxley that if the CEO files anything that's fraudulent, he or she can go to jail and face legal charges. Why should Congress be spared from that? If you have to write 3,000-page bills, first of all, write them shorter, or secondly, give people time to read them and understand them. That's part of the tricks, though, is try to put that bill in right before it's voted on so they can get all kinds of... Of course. Everybody's going to smile. If, if you can't do that, then you should not be in Congress. And by the way, True. in 1973, when Don Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense the first time, we were fighting a war in Vietnam. We had two or 300,000 troops engaged in Vietnam. You know how long the defense, uh, the defense appropriation or authorization bill was? 93 pages. Wow. Today, it's 3,000 pages in the Senate and 4,000 pages in the House. That is outrageous. outrageous. That is outrageous. We're lacking common sense. Come on. How long was the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence? Now we've got 5,000 pages of bills that make no sense that are contradictory. We need to get a hold of how we're governing ourselves. And people have got to be responsible to the man of their government, leadership and competence. And we're not getting irrespective of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, it, Congress is not functioning. It's not functioning efficiently. It's broken. Oh, it's broken. It's, it's, Will Rogers, 80 years ago, said every time Congress passes a law, it's a joke. And every time they make a law, it turns out to be a joke. He's right. We've got to take charge. And by the way, take a look at what's happening in Britain with the, with the election of a new prime minister to succeed, Boris Johnson. Who is the oldest candidate running? It's not... 79-year-old Joe Biden or 76-year-old Donald Trump or whatever Nancy Pelosi's age or Chuck Schumer's age 
or Mitch McConnell's age, we've got geriatrics in charge. Now, I'm not condemning them for being old because I'm actually older than they are. But what I'm saying is, where is our new blood? Where's the Jack Kennedy or the Teddy Roosevelt? They've got to be there. And we cannot run government when we've got people, you know, so much advanced age and young blood is being frozen out. That's a real problem. How we overcome that is not going to happen overnight. And I've got some suggestions in my book about how we fix the system. So we let people who are competent come into government because we pre-clear them for security reasons. And we have kind of a pool of people who are pre-qualified, no matter who wins the election, that they can be drawn upon to help man the government. You know, the American public want term limits. They like 75 to 80 percent say, yeah, we need term limits, but it never happens. So that's kind oh, of I don't, problem. I, you know, I don't agree with term limits. Term limits are uh, elections. And if you have a competent person in president to be president, look, I like George W. Bush. I think for the first six years, George Bush was a catastrophe. He ruined this country in so many, many ways. I like George. The last two years, he was a competent president. I would have voted for George for third term, despite all the things that he did for the first six years, because he had learned. And the trouble today is that we elect presidents who lack the experience. George H.W. Bush was the last president in my mind, as I point out in my book, who had the experience. And then you get Bill Clinton, who's a great politician, a governor. There's no experience there. George W. Bush, governor in one of the weakest governorships in the world. Barack Obama, who spent two years in the Senate. Donald Trump, who had no qualifications whatsoever. And quite surprisingly, Joe Biden, who I thought 36 years in the Senate, vice president for eight years, would bring some degree of experience and he hasn't done that. And so you can contradict my my critique about not having sufficient experience, but it's been a long time since we've had a really competent president and we need one desperately. Yeah, I mean, any it's much more fragile than we think. Like th- we just printed over this coronavirus more money in two years sure. than like, yeah, just incredible. Crazy, and that's what's yeah, causing the inflation. Crazy. You know, yeah, you can crazy. talk about Russia, Ukraine, those things are hurting, I agree, but we've printed all this money and anybody who doesn't realize when you have an excess of cash what does that do that's inflationary you don't have to be a phd in economics to know that now how do we fix it and the way that we fix it i go back to my infrastructure bank idea we've got to fix the american infrastructure so that productivity is enhanced and the best example is then as i go into in my book the 1918 to 1920 spanish flu because when the spanish flu ended the United States under Warren G. Harding, who died in office after just over two years, who's, who's underestimated as president, the United States began the greatest economic boom in its history until the guardrails weren't present and we had the Great Depression. But why did we do that? First, we electrified the country. Most of the country had no electricity. When you brought electricity in, all of a sudden pro- productivity soared. The automobile, you had Henry Ford and Walter Chrysler who would give you a car in any color as long as it was black. But what did those cars do? They generated the demand for steel, for leather, for roads, for rubber, for tires, for gasoline, for the hospitality uh, industries. And that boom, we have the equivalent in technology today. We have artificial intelligence. We've got genome. I mean, the amount of available uh, technology today is is infinitely more than it was a hundred years ago, on which we should be drawing. We're not doing that, and that's why I'm outraged. We have the capacity, we have the physical capital, we've got the intellectual capital, but the political system makes it impossible 
for us to recreate what we did 100 years ago after the Spanish flu, now COVID, to put this country in the greatest economic position in its history. And the country is just paralyzed to do that, which explains part of my frustration. Right. And what do you see like this context of, of this, like Russia and China? Uh, how do you see them as disruptors in the current? Well, country? they are disruptors. But first of all, we exact. Would somebody please tell me what the threat of China is? The it would be economic, like over a manufacturing, uh, bigger economy, maybe. Nah, look, no, no, look, they steal our IP. That's our fault. We should be doing two things. We should be protecting RP, and we should be going after their RP. The notion that somehow China's got this huge military and it's building its military, that military is not going to be projected. People say they're worried about Taiwan being invaded. That's nonsense. China does not have the capability to launch a Normandy-style large amphibious operation against Taiwan, which would require hundreds of thousands of soldiers and thousands of ships. Now, they could destroy Taiwan, they could cut Taiwan off, they could embargo Taiwan, they got... But this notion that we have to have a military response to prevent a Chinese invasion is like saying we got to protect against an invasion from Mars. It's nonsense. We don't believe that. China, Russia, Putin, sadly, is not crazy. He's smart. And he knows how to attack us. How have we responded? In Ukraine, we have been too slow in providing Ukrainians the necessary weaponry to deal with Russia. We don't understand their weaknesses in Russia. If you listen to Putin's State of the Union speech at the end of 2021, one of his priorities was to raise life expectancy for males from 62 to 70. They have a declining population. They have an economic mess. Their weaknesses are huge. We don't look at that. China is even weaker. China has a huge debt that is far greater than ours. It has a real estate bubble. It has an absence of, of, of females. And it has a declining population. They have got huge internal problems. So we have exaggerated as we did the Soviet Union. I'm not saying they're not, they have interests that are contradictory to ours and they're out to do us damage. I agree with that. But we can do it without necessarily turning them into enemies if we understand exactly what their strengths and weaknesses are. And we only focus on strengths, not their weaknesses. I have three chapters in my book on Putin and, and President Xi of China that lay out the history of how we got to where we did and what we need to do about it. But we don't need, in my mind, to spend $850 billion if the House bill is approved on defense. We can do it much more cheaply based on the lessons of how the Ukrainians, with asymmetric warfare system to include drones and Stinger missiles and Javelin missiles and smart tactics, dealt with the Russians. We can do that far less expensively. And by the way, and I make this point in my book, we had an all-volunteer force after Vietnam, the war I served, simply because we found the draft was no longer acceptable. We cannot maintain the all-volunteer force for several reasons. One, as I noted earlier, the cost of personnel has become astronomical. and We cannot afford it. But worse, we're not getting people coming off the streets to join the military. We're having to recruit them because <laughs> employment is, is, unemployment is very, very low, and there are better attractions than serving in the military. So we need to make profound changes today to deal with these massive attacks of disruption across the board. We can do that. These are common sense. But the worst enemy has failed in failing government, which is preventing us from becoming a fully rational society, a civil society, because the discourse today is uncivil, 
There's no role for compromise and consensus, which is essential to a constitutional system. That's not going to happen. It's not going to change overnight, William. But the Constitution is under attack. And unless Americans realize where we're headed, the direction is very, very dangerous. And we can fix it if we start acting now. They really do. And I mean, this, uh, like, it's, there's just no agreement going on right now. I don't, I, I, how do you see this kind of uh, polarity being solved? I mean, you can talk about people yeah. having to rebuild or stuff like that, but the, the overlap, there's no overlap in the different different groups, the different groups. Yeah, uh, look, look, the polarization in America, this whole notion, for example, on the 2020 election is, is, is incomprehensible, which our enemies are going to exploit. There's not one piece of evidence, not one piece of evidence that shows that the election was stolen, not one. And yet a substantial number of Republicans believe the election was stolen because Donald Trump says it was. Truth and fact no longer count. It's what I think or what I feel or what I think I should feel. That's going to take time. And the reason we're in this position is because there is virtually no trust or confidence in the legitimacy of any of our institutions. And I can name three dates that encapsulate why this happens. Going back to August 7th, 1964, when Congress, with only two dissenting votes, passed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution about an alleged North Vietnamese PT boat attack against two American destroyers that never took place and got us into Vietnam. And Vietnam began the erosion of trust in government. At that point in 1964, 75 or 80% of Americans trusted the government. You go through the Carter administration and its weaknesses and all the problems we had. You go through the Afghan war, the second Iraq war, all these things. What institution in America, albeit the Boy Scouts, clergy, the Congress, the media, lawyers, as any Supreme Court, has any degree of credibility? The only one possibly is the military. So when you have no faith in your government or institutions, this is a very, very bad sign for society. We have to change that. We have to change that by understanding truth and fact count and the civil dialogue count. I argue that I am a radical independent. I'm equally critical of Republicans and Democrats. And whenever I go on programs in which there's sort of a very right-wing or left-wing person who will accuse me of being of the other party, I ask them to focus on truth and fact. And that is something that we have to do. It's not going to happen overnight. And unless we can return civility to this nation, as I said, where we are headed, where our ship of state is headed, is the dangerous shoal waters that are littered, littered with icebergs and other massive attacks of disruption that can uh, really make life very difficult for us and will unless we change course. Right. If there's a massive uh, attack of disruption in this uh, political paralysis, it's more trouble. Uh, they course. can't throw any money. There's no more money to throw at this. They and why would you? And why would you? We're depending upon the Fed. What we don't understand, the Fed has two contradictory purposes, all right? To maintain minimum unemployment and to protect against inflation. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's like saying to a pitcher, you can throw anything you want except a fastball or a curveball. Those are contradictory. And what we have to do is understand that we have to give our government institutions specific orders of which they are capable of carrying out. And we haven't done that, sadly. Um, so, and, 
So if this doesn't change, where do you think we're going to go? If we don't well, the best case, the ship the best case William, the best case, William, is that our standards of living will decline. As I said at the beginning of this program, if you take a look at the economic and financial inequalities and wealth in this country, they're as bad as they were during the Depression of 19, late 1920s, early 1930. Um, July 4th, yesterday, marked the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution. We could have that here. You have many, many millions of Americans who can't make their paychecks. If you have many, many millions of Americans living at the poverty line or below, ultimately, and you add to it 400 million guns, thereabouts, firearms in this country, uh, you have all the, the makings of a potential political and economic uh, improvised explosive device of infinite proportion. I'm not suggesting a civil war as we had in 1861, but violence is increasing. Look at the amount of, of, of mass shootings. Look at the incidence of road rage or airport, airline rage. When I used to fly an airplane when I was young, we used to fly in coats and ties. Would you ever imagine getting onto an airplane and getting into a fist fight? I mean, the whole nature of society has become very, very difficult, more violent and uncivil. That's not going to turn around overnight. The only way we're going to fix it, and I think that what Joe Biden needs to do is to take the senior members of Congress, of both parties, Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, take them to Camp David or Antarctica, I don't care where, lock them in a the room and come up with three or four things on which we can agree. Turn the nature of this country around. But we are headed in a bad direction, and quite frankly, if President um, Xi Jinping of China and President Putin of Russia are as clever as I think they could be. They have the means through social media to exploit this huge financial and wealth disparity in this country. They can do that. And yeah, the it's so a weakness. Yeah. Excellent this through, through social media. And by the way, that's how Donald Trump became president, running on Make America Great Again. And if Trump wants to run again and wants to hire Steve Bannon, the way he does it is to take this financial imbalance and inequality and make it his mission to fix it. And he will get tens, many tens of millions of Americans on his side because unfortunately or fortunately, that's the right argument. We have to fix this imbalance and we've got to do it smartly and we can't do it ideologically the way the progressives on the far left want to do it or the people on the far right want to do it. It's got to be done in the center. And quite frankly, one of the problems in America today, center, whether you're center left, center right, or center, you're not being represented by many people in Congress. It's the one constituency of 70% of Americans, give or take some, who've got no representation. We govern by the center and we can't do that. It's a really difficult predicament. I mean, I think that the stat that I read is like, I think 40 or 50% of Americans cannot handle a $500 bill. Like some yeah, random. I mean, the statistics, they're yeah. huge. But the problem is most Americans are having a very tough time meeting ends meet. And then you want to deal with the government. Um, I wanted to buy uh, one of the treasury uh, inflation bonds. You know, I've got a PhD. I've got, I don't know how many degrees. The website made it impossible for me to do that. And so when you want to deal with government, it's no longer user friendly. Now we have to do this and we can do this over time if we understand, the Americans can understand here's a new direction 
that we have to head, you can get consensus. And that's the whole focus of the book, that it's massive attacks of disruption. They can be huge like COVID or climate change or small like inflation and gas prices. But they are eroded in the country because they are attacking our basic vulnerabilities and they're attacking the Constitution. The Constitution is based on checks and balances. It only works when at least one of three conditions is in place. One, you have a majority, veto-proof majority on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and five votes in the Supreme Court. That never happened, not even under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You have a crisis. Pearl Harbor rallied the nation December 8, 1941, after the attack. COVID, as I said, killed more Americans than we've lost in every war. And yet COVID divided the nation. Or you have civility and compromise. Would you please give me one iota, one example of civility and compromise in the U.S. Congress today? Quite the opposite. No, no, I can't. Yeah, it's a word. It doesn't look good. I'm not optimistic unless you unless these changes are implemented immediately. I don't see the people who are going to, you know, throw down and, and implement these changes that need to take place. That's the real sad truth. I well, I think I think if look, I, I think there are a lot of good people in Congress, but they're so bound by their parties and party discipline that they cannot break this tyranny. But as soon as people realize how difficult things are, and common sense, for example. I would argue that the executive branch is still argued very much it's organized as it was in 1799 and George Washington. We have, we have an agriculture department. Do you know the number of independent farmers in America is no longer statistically relevant? We have a department of education. The issue is not education. It's learning. I don't care how well educated you think you are. What do you know? So we've got to focus these things on common sense things that Americans, and I believe that the vast majority of Americans are smart, good people who believe in common sense. And we're not doing that. We need to rally the nation. And we can do it. This is not, you know, a, a moonshot. But unfortunately, the fact that we have a broken and failed and failing government makes this extremely difficult to achieve. And common sense is being one of the victims. And that's why I go back to my book. I have any number of recommendations to deal large or small about how we can redeem America, provided we have sufficient knowledge and understanding. Because I argue in an earlier book of mine, Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. The reason we lost, because we had no knowledge of un and understanding of what we were doing. I was in Vietnam. We were clueless. We went into Afghanistan. We had no idea about Afghanistan. We went into Iraq the second time for weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. And we should have known they did not exist. We're dealing with Russia and Ukraine. We don't have a clue with what we're doing or China. And this transcends, unfortunately, administrations, even when you get really good people who should be knowledgeable. But it's the political system that makes it very difficult to have knowledge and understanding because it becomes so distorted uh, by, unfortunately, politics, which are now based on winning power at any cost and not governing. That is right. the key critique that I have of this country. Politics are not about governing for the best interest. Politics are about winning, and that is not a winning strategy. It's not. I mean, you're really calling for a national renaissance. I think that's really what needs to happen if we're going to make and it. And that's one of my chapters, a national yeah. renaissance. Well, we can do it. Yeah. Americans are good, decent, honest people. The problem is not with the public. The problem is that our government is not working, and the only way it fixes Ben Franklin had it right. We have a republic as long as we can keep it. We're not keeping it. And Americans have to wake up 
I know they're consumed with particular issues, healthcare, paying bills, whether kids go to college, crime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But our government is failing and Americans have to wake up and say, we need to change it. Amen. That's a great way to end it. Uh, Dr. Ullman, where's the best place for people to get the fifth horseman and the new man? Go online to Amazon, click, click. It'll be there in two days at, at worst case. It, you know, and the book has got an awful lot of really good blurbs from really serious people, former secretaries of defense, former generals, admirals, uh, the granddaughter of, of Dwight Eisenhower. And indeed one of my close, <laughs> my close friends who was the author of, uh, of the House of Cards in England, which was a big story here. But it's, it's, it's a book which is powerful. It lays out the problems, but more importantly, it lays out the solutions. And it's a clarion call. We are in trouble. Wake up. We can fix this. And at the end of the day, the book is optimistic because we can. I'm of such an age. It's not going to affect me. But people are much younger and future generations. But they want an America that I knew when I was growing up to be an America at least as good, prosperous prosperous, safe, and secure, they better pay attention because that's not what they're going to get on the current. And there's an audio book too. So you can get Kindle Absolutely. audio. So there's yeah, a lot of options. While you're, while you're running your 10 miles or doing whatever you do. <laughs> right. Thanks I so would, much for, awesome. Thanks so much for, and does, do you have social media or any way people can contact you if they're interested? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on I'm on Twitter at Harlan K. Ullman. I do not have a, a website because I've been hacked by the Russians or the Chinese and I just didn't want to put up with their nonsense. Gotcha. So Twitter at Harlan K. Olin. Yeah, William. And again, the title of the book is The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large with Dr. Harlan Ullman, published December 2021. Thanks so much for your time. William, thank you. This has been a very interesting session. Thank you for your questions. You've been a great host. Take care. Thanks so much. Stay there.